This is CNN. Radio. Welcome to CNN Profiles. I'm your host, Michael Shoulder. And joining us now is a very prolific author. Many of you haven't heard of her, but you're going to start to hear of her. Uh, her name is Jen Lancaster. She is author of the new book out just, when is it, next week, Jen? Uh, it comes out in two and a half weeks. It comes out on June 4th. Oh, see, so we really have the breaking news scoop here. The Dow, <laughs> the Dow of Martha, as in Martha Stewart, My Year of Living or Why I'm Never Getting All That Glitter Off the Dog. And I'm telling you, when you read Jen Lancaster's biography, the last person on earth you would think of as Martha Stewart, but somehow... Jen, you thought of her. So first of all, tell us what the book's about. And and then I really want to start your story from halfway through your life because there's a pivotal point there. The book is about my living a year of my life by Martha Stewart's dictates. And it all started because of our kitchen gun cabinet. Um, We bought a house that had a gun cabinet in the kitchen, which was really not a selling point for us. Um, What happened was my university was coming to interview me for a a profile piece in the alumni magazine. And my house always looks good, but it's really, really disorganized under the surface. So when when Purdue was coming, I stashed everything that was on the counters inside the gun cabinet. Flash forward to six months later when I was looking for this recipe that I couldn't find. And it took me three hours of tearing apart the house. And I ended up finding it in the gun cabinet because truly that is always the last place you look. And that started me thinking. I'd had a really bad 2011, not anything big, just a lot of stupid little things. And I wanted to have a great 2012. And I figured to do that, I needed, I don't know, kind of a spirit guide. And I'm much more um, Team Martha Stewart than I am Team Oprah. Because with Oprah, she'll tell you how to live your best life and how to chart a vision board and how to imagine your hopes and dreams. But with Martha Stewart... She'll tell you she's more what to eat, who to love, and how to pray, you know, instead of being eat, pray, love like Oprah is. So that's what started me off on my year-long odyssey, my patent disorganization. So first of all, you know, because when I first saw this, I said, oh, is this, is this another Julie and Julia where, you know, somebody tries to sort of take on all the Julia Child recipes who really doesn't have that experience. And, and But the more I sort of looked into it, it... it it's really not because, I don't know, you're st- you still seem like such different characters. But t- tell me about that. Did you think of that comparison? Oh, definitely. I read the book and I loved it. Um, you know, saw the movie and I loved it. And then I read her next book, which was Cleaving, where she was having affairs with people and, and really dirty sex with people that weren't her husband. And I thought that is definitely not the route that I want to go down. But I love the idea of her taking someone so iconic and then basing her lifestyle after them. That really appealed to me. And I wanted to do a happiness project. I knew that um, I knew that I was going to have a sad event in 2012. Um, I, I adopted a dog 10 years ago, and I knew that we were going to lose her because she'd had cancer for three years, and um, she'd had numerous surgeries. And I knew that at some point she was going to be gone. So I wanted to do something to sort of stockpile happiness. And that's that was the whole purpose of, of doing the Martha book. Okay. So now we're going to come back to the Martha book. But but the first thing I want to do, you know, you can start your life story anywhere, right? But I was struck, <laughs> I was struck in your biography, and I urge everybody to, it's www.jensylvania.com. You really do have one of the most entertainingly presented <laughs> biographies. And at one point, though, you seemed like it was the dot-com boom. You were a master of the universe. I have to tell you, one of the themes that we dwell on on this show is 
insights into resilience. What makes people resilient? And boy, have you had some opportunities to demonstrate your resilience. So you were <laughs> sort of like a master of the universe. And I think we have to go back a little bit further, though, and, and examine my 11 years of college. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. You start it there. Well, I, because that's a very important in, that's a very important part of the work ethic that I eventually brought to the to the workplace. I have to stop for one second because the, the line almost went by me. My eleven years of college. Okay, my eleven years of college. I got it. Keep on going. Yeah, my eleven years of college, and I'm not a doctor or anything. I have an undergraduate degree in political science. Which, hey, guess what? You can't do anything with that. But when I started college, I was I was really young. I was seventeen. I was young. I was young for my age. I was immature for my age. I went to college, and Upon having all this freedom, I lost my freaking mind. After two years at Purdue, I flunked out, at which point my parents said, we're done paying for college, you screwed up, now you're on your own. So for the next nine years, I paid to put myself through college, and I learned the value of my education, and I learned the value of a dollar. So by the time I finally graduated, I mean, there were some some semesters where I would take one class and I would waitress full time. And you know what? I don't want to wear an apron for the rest of my life. So um, when I graduated, I got a job doing data entry for an insurance company. And that is the most boring job on the face of the earth. And the Internet has completely, completely eliminated that job. I was I was made to proof the physician directory. So I would have to call doctor's offices and find out if they were on Elm Street Elm Ave, Elm Place. It was kind of a worthless job. So I I slogged through the insurance industry for about two years, and I continually got promoted because it turned out most people were sort of happy at the level where they were. This is at the time of the the rise of the dot-com, and I knew that was going to be a thing. So I found a job with a technology firm, and then I really began to rise through the ranks. So right around, um, right after September 11th, I had I was an executive vice president um, working for uh, a tech company, and well, I wait, was wait, laid pause, off. Pa- you got to pause right there because that was a pretty quick rise to executive vice president. But the first thing I want to ask you is, and this is a life lesson, and Archie, are you a parent right now? I am not a parent. Okay. Uh, but this is a lesson that we parents are always trying to teach our kids, which is sometimes when you have boring work, you need to plow through it and still do a good job at that because not everything's going to be interesting. And it sounds like somehow you had that inside you. It sounds like you did a good job at this mind-numbing work of data entry. Is that true? That is absolutely true. One of the things that I did for this job that that got me in front of the right people is um, I was bored at my desk, so I was always going around to other people asking them if they had any work to do, and apparently that is not something that people do. So I was always seeking out other things to do at work. I figure if I'm going to be here, I want to make the most of my time. So I planned this. I was on this employee Christmas party planning um, committee, and the day that we were supposed to meet with the president of the company – to ask for more money for this party, everyone was a coward and they bailed on me. So I was this this 20-something kid who had the lowest ranking job in the entire organization. And we had just been through these ho- this whole massive round of layoffs. So I went in and spoke to the company president because I didn't have enough sense not to be confident. And I said, listen, Robert, we have a morale problem. We need to throw everyone a phenomenal party so everybody is happy at the company again. And he just laughed and laughed and said, why are you not in sales for me? And I said, I don't know, Robert. Why don't you tell me why I'm not in sales? I was promoted within a month. I was promoted within a month and started making twice the money that I had made from my, um, my stupid data entry job. Oh, that's, wait, this is the same company? 
This was the insurance company. This was the first place where I worked. So it was data entry for an insurance company. You get promoted. You're making twice as much, and your title at that point is? Um, I t- uh, what was I? I was a provider relations representative. It wasn't until I left the insurance company. The reason that I left the insurance company is we met with the actual president of the entire company. I mean, I, I worked for Aetna U.S. Healthcare, so it was, I mean, it was definitely a major player at the time. And the, the, the CEO of the entire corporation was going from office to office to meet employees employees and wanted to know what he could do to make our lives easier. And it it was astounding to me the things that my coworkers were asking him. I, I was looking at how do we make how do we go paperless for our for our doctors? How do we make the credentialing process easier? I was thinking very high level and I was in this room with maybe fifteen or twenty of my coworkers and they were saying, Well I can't get this person to call me back. Can you get them to call me back? And I thought this is not the industry for me. This is not the right place for me. I was the only one asking the high-level questions and the only one who really seemed like they cared about what was best for the company. And it was at that moment that I, I tendered my resignation and I went to work for a technology firm. How, how, how fa- From the realization of this is not for me to tendering your resignation was how long? It was about one week. Wow. So you are really, I mean, you make decisions fast. Yeah, oh, I wait, don't except- make great Except, except, for, except for the college. Well, the college, 11 years of college, that wasn't because you were slow. It was because you had to work your way through college, right? Yeah. Basically, yeah. And also the first two years was because I was an idiot. Well, okay. So, so now we're, we're already seeing a pattern here. It's, you know, the adversity gets, <laughs> gets you going, whether it's adversity through boredom and frustration or adversity through you screwed up and you're, you're, you, you want to make it right. So now you hop over the, to this technology company as an executive vice president or just a lateral no, move? No, just as a salesperson. And I was, I was a really good salesperson because here's the other thing. I like things. I like things a lot. Um, there was a Prada bag that I had my eye on, and that drove me to work really, really hard. Wow. And you have do you have that Prada bag right now? I still have that Prada bag, and that is actually the Prada bag that I carry to the unemployment office. In which I learned another very important lesson, which is don't carry a Prada bag to the unemployment office. Did, they uh, remember you for that. They they don't like that. Of course, they could have assumed it was a knockoff. But I guess I guess you carried it in a way where they knew it wasn't a knockoff. I feel like I did. And and so, how long did it take you though to get to executive vice president of this technology company during the dot com boom? It was, well, here's the thing. It was during the dot-com boom, so nothing was real back then. I, I should have seen the end coming back when um, there was a company called Gazelle.com, and they were a company that sold online legwear and leg care. Essentially, it was a sock portal, and they received $80 million in venture capital. And at that point, I should have realized all of this is false. So the fact that I had this great title that I thought that I earned, you know, years later in retrospect, everybody had cool titles back then. Everybody was making great money then because people were throwing money around like ninnies. $80 million for a sock portal. $80 million for a sock portal. Mm-hmm. And by the way, this immediately brings me back to your book, and, and I really need to focus on these Martha Stewart methods because I can never find a matching pair of socks. <laughs> so I can knit you some. 
Well, thank you. But you know what? When I, when I think of how many socks I have to replace, I think, well, what's wrong with $80 million for a sock portal? It, it, I need a constant supply. But, <laughs> but that's okay. So it didn't work. The sock portal didn't work. Thank God I didn't invest in it. But, and you realized it was crazy. And so now I'm, I'm thinking, you, Jen Lancaster, you're a writer, right? I mean, when, when people ask you your profession, you told me you've written how many books over, over what length of time? I've written 10 books. I just finished my, I just turned my 10th one in a couple of weeks ago since um, 2005. 10 books since 2005, more than one a year. And, more than one a year, and, yeah. It turned out a couple of years ago when my husband and I were shopping for our first home, I didn't like any of the houses in, within our budget. And I thought, well, what if I were to write twice as many books per year? So I branched into fiction. You wow! You really are so motivated by these things, by by really acquiring like things. things. It's great. I like things. I, I'll, I'm going to be honest. I like things. Right. Now you, we're going to get into the the morals of Jen Lancaster soon because I I know you've got to be a person who goes beyond things. But let me let me just ask you. It reminds me there was a great writer, Primo Levi, who was asked many times. He wrote an essay about this. Asked many times by people, how do you write? What's your technique? You know, you wake up early in the morning, and he went through this long, 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 long essay, and then the punchline at the end of it is, oh, one more thing. In order to become a writer, you need something to write about. And so as I listened to your biography, you were in your 30s when you lost, when, when, the, when the dot-com bubble burst, and, but you had had all this great life experience and presumably so much to write about. When did you decide you had to get those stories out of your head and onto the computer screen. Well, here, here's how it happened. After I got laid off, I spent two years looking for work, and I didn't understand how I could have been in the position that I had held and making the money that I had had, and I, I didn't realize that the world had changed. I'm in Chicago, and at the time in Chicago, we were hit particularly hard when the dot-com market crashed. That's when... Um, Anderson, or I think it was Arthur Anderson, went down. So all of a sudden, I was competing against people who didn't take 11 years to get through college, um, who hadn't flunked out of Purdue, and who had actual technical skills instead of just a bachelor's degree in political science, which, again, there is nothing you can do with that uh, except for be witting and, and charming at parties. So in this two-year period, I went from someone who had assistance and, and had people get me my coffee, to having to take temp jobs in order to stay living indoors. So I became the person who fetched other people's coffee. And that was incredibly humbling. So the whole experience was just, it was hard. And there are so many people who are going through this experience now, which is why I think my first book, Bitter is the New Black, which I wrote about going from having everything to, to really almost losing everything. We were evicted. We had our car repossessed because my husband, who is in the tech industry, lost his job too. So it was really about reinventing myself. So what I did is I started this little website because I knew enough about technology. I knew enough how to start a website. And I had a blog months, months and months before they were even called blogs. I thought I thought I just had a website. I began documenting my experiences on the web and people started to respond. What year what year was that? This was back in 2003. And you know what? I was going to ask you, did this two-year period, I mean, sink you into a depression? Or did you always have the faith that you would come out of it 
Well, it, it was really, really hard. And the thing is, I mean, we were we didn't have health insurance. My husband was my husband suffered from depression. He wasn't on his meds. So it was really me trying to hold us both together. And I had to keep a positive attitude. I kept saying to myself the entire time when things were so hard, when bill collectors were calling, you know, every five minutes, every single day that I'm going to find a way to make this pay off. So, uh, so where did you get that attitude? Was it from your parents? Was there some pivotal moment or just... That the the bulk of your experiences in childhood just made you because this I mean this really is a case study in resilience here. Where did you get I, it from? I have good parents. I have parents who really um, introduced the idea of a work ethic to me. Everything I had as a kid, I had to earn, and it was um, every Saturday morning. My father used to call up the stairs to my brother and me, saying, "Okay, who wants to clean the pool?" And whoever didn't go downstairs and volunteer to clean the pool or whatever job he called first was going to end up with something far, far, far worse. And um, then Ooh, I my- want to hold on. You know what? That we're going to be tweeting. Far and wide. <laughs> that is a real parenting lesson. Not, you know, look, there are a million ways to instill this value of work, but that is really interesting. Seize that first job or that second one. Now, of course, with you, it worked the opposite way in real life. The first right. jobs you seized were the worst ones, and then you eventually evolved your way into better ones. But nevertheless, as a parenting tool, that's going to get some buzz. Okay, let's keep going. Oh, he also, um, back when I was in college, when I wasn't doing well, he the threat of them not paying for college was very, very real. And then it was um, my sophomore year, I, th- I think right before, yeah, Christmas, right before Christmas of my sophomore year, and I wasn't doing well in my classes. And my dad kept saying, if you flunk out of school, I'm going to buy myself a Mercedes. And I thought, oh, yeah, idle threat, idle threat, you know what he was going to do when he wasn't having to pay my tuition. So right before my finals, I received this big care package from my father. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe he's he's gotten so soft to send me a care package. This is fantastic. I opened it up and it was a stack of brochures for the 1986 Mercedes Benz. Oh, my God. And he wrote a note on it saying, don't study too hard. Oh, all right, so your parents, your father, I mean, that's a wicked sense of humor, and there's oh, an edge to it, but, he but it's funny. He has an evil sense of humor in the best possible way. And, and so clearly he got so, maybe that's the answer to your resilience. Is it the sense of humor? I think so. I think so. I didn't, I didn't realize how much I used humor to deal with things until everything was at its very worst. When I, um, like I said, in 2003, when I started my website and we were, we were losing everything and, and I didn't know that other people thought I was funny. I thought it was just something that I did to make myself feel better. Hmm. So, you, so you're writing this blog, and 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 so in those days, though, you're sort of writing. You know, uh, I remember, I remember a psychologist once told me, "Don't let any ideas stay trapped in your head. Write, oh, write them." Isn't that great advice? And ever since then. I've been writing like crazy. I'm like I'm as happy as can be as long as I'm writing. So and and sometimes it doesn't matter. You, you you'd like a big audience, but you're not thinking about the audience. You're just getting your ideas out of your head, and that must have been what it was like. I mean, now you have tens of thousands of followers. You didn't have the, the technology didn't even exist no. to, for for that many people to find you in two thousand two two thousand three. So what was it like? You were writing every day. I was writing every single day, and the more I wrote, the more I thought this feels right. This is something that I want to do. And I did, I wrote in high school. I was on, I was the nerdy kid on the yearbook staff and the newspaper staff. And I wanted to go to college to study journalism. And my father, who is, again, very funny, and he's, he's from Boston. And so he has this very thick Boston accent. He said, Jennifer, 
You're going to become a journalist and you're going to make $17,000 a year and you're not going to like it. So I changed my major because I thought, no, I don't like the sounds of that at all. Ironically, the first year that I actually got paid to be a writer, I made $17,000, which was preceded by two years where I made zero. So so $17,000 was not, I mean, that's not enough to get you out of your debt and all that stuff. What was the turning point? And, And again, you told us already, you are a good salesperson. You are a natural salesperson. You know, we had a, a, a guest, Daniel, Daniel Pink. Very oh, well, I love him. Yeah, very well-known author. And he's just written a book, To Sell, to sell is Human. And uh, basically the premise is that in so many jobs now where sales did not used to matter that much, I mean, not traditional sales jobs, just whatever it is, journalism, anything – you're using an increasing amount of time to persuade other people to part with their resources. And you've got to know how to sell in an age when we all have a lot of the same information. So you don't have that to hold over people. So you were a natural salesperson, 17000 a year, though. You better do a better selling job. So how did you take <laughs> it to the next level? Um, what I did was I accumulated a body of work. And this is at the time when all these new bloggers were getting book deals. And that sounded really great because I wasn't having any trouble getting an actual job. And I was I was temping for $12 an hour, which was which was incredibly humbling. And it was about the best thing that ever could have happened to me, although I didn't think so at the time. So I began to amass a body of work. And it wasn't until I had a solid nine months of work of writing every single day that I began to try to attract people to my website, because I did have that whole internet marketing component to, I mean, from having worked for a tech company. So I started to take my best articles and plant them on the web. One of the the, the biggest thing that I used was was Craigslist. I, you know, you go there to buy a, a, a rattan headboard. Mm-hmm. And I started posting my best essays on their rants and raves section. Um, but instead of doing it in, in the Chicago section, I did it in the New York section because I thought surely there are literary agents who are sitting around their office and are bored and are just trolling around the web. So I posted my stuff there. I made sure that I put a link back to my website. And here's the thing. I didn't know how to write a proper query letter because there's a million books on how to write query letters um, for, for a book deal, and all of them have conflicting information. So I thought, well, maybe if I can get a literary agent interested in me, I can avoid the whole query letter thing and just skip right to the head of the line. And it actually worked. After I, The thing that got me was Ashton Kutcher. Uh, he had decided that he was he and his friends were the new Rat Pack. And I grew up in an Italian household. I mean, half, half my family is Italian. And you don't blaspheme Frank Sinatra. So when Aston Kutcher is running around declaring himself a new member of the Rat Pack, I lost it. I wrote the most scathing article. That's what I put on Craigslist. I put a link back to my website. And within a day, I heard from three different literary agents. And the thing that's so funny is it made best of Craigslist. And all these years later, it's still there, which I think is so funny. I got to go look that up because, you know, what? I am a huge Sinatra fan. And while I don't come from an Italian background... My father did grow up in an Italian neighborhood in uh, uh, the Lower East, uh, I'm sorry, uh, East Harlem in New York. My mother grew up in New Haven, huge Italian community. Her Italian friends taught her how to make sauce, oh. which she took with her 
Her whole life, we used to get care packages all the time, as long as she lived, of her sauce, but it was the Italian New Haven sauce. The fact that you stuck up for the Rat Pack is so endearing to me. So thank you for doing that. Oh, you're welcome. So you, so you stuck up for Sinatra, and you got to this next level of literary agents, discovered you, and so here you are. Here you are. Here you are is the bottom line. Ten books later, 11 books later, uh, I know what my pitch is going to be to the literary agents, by the way. You know what my book is going to be called? What's that? The Tao of Jen Lancaster. <laughs> so now you've got to get us the Tao of Jen Lancaster. In our last five minutes, tell us. So you took all this lack of focus and organization. You harnessed it. Has it worked? Has there been a pivotal, a pivotal moment, a pivotal insight you can share with us? So if we just want the quick version, we can start implementing things right away. Honest to God, I took it so to heart. Martha Stewart changed everything about my life. She really taught me the value of having things in place and being able to do things right. Like I said, I've always been pretty scattered, pretty disorganized. I always felt like I could be more successful if I could just get it together a little bit. Like my spice cabinet. I would have 15 open things of of sage and thyme and rosemary, and I didn't know where anything was. And my husband is an ex-military man, so he's very rigid. He's very organized, but he's so organized that he would organize the spices by, like, country of origin. And that's hard. <laughs> I mean, just putting everything in alphabetical order, oh my God, that was a godsend. That was a boon. And I'm a big baker. It took me nine months to get our stupid butler's pantry cleared out of all the extraneous plates and glasses that I've never thrown away. But now I can bake anything at any time. Last night at 630, I thought, hey, we should have Texas sheet cake. So within an hour, I had this this cake completely done because it was so easy to go in and pull all of my ingredients, which are all in matching jars with matching labels. And it's so Martha Stewart that it almost makes me sick. But it just makes so much sense. And the thing that I think I really learned from living a year by her dictates is you have to try. I was able to accomplish so many things that I never thought that I could do before, like stupid things. Like I never thought I could make a cheesecake because I thought that they were complicated. They take special equipment, but once you make one, it's the easiest thing in the entire world. Let me ask you, has it made your writing more efficient? Like have those organizational principles translate it over to your career or does it just make everything else go more smoothly and then you have more time to write I, I never really had trouble with the writing but organizing my desk drawers in my office that was massive I mean I've lived in I've lived in probably five different places over the last eight years and every time we've moved we've had movers so for the last three or four moves I've had movers going through my desk drawers and packing up the the free-range Jolly Ranchers that had been floating around in there since my Christmas stocking in 2007 and the old batteries and business cards from back when I used to have a job. What Martha made me do was go through, clean everything out, and now I can open my drawers and I can find things, and it just makes my life a million times easier. So that's one less thing I have to think about. Did you do this yourself? Did you hire somebody to help you organize? Because that's a uh, oh, I did it all myself. I thought if I hired someone, that's cheating, and then that way I won't learn. Right, and uh, yeah, and the, and and then the book wouldn't have been you would you wouldn't have had the level of insight. So, all right, now that you have been Marthaized and you are so organized that if I were to come to your house and look in the closets, things wouldn't fall on my head, and it would be a, a, a wonderful, pleasurable experience. Now that you've been Marthaized, what is the next terrain that you want to conquer? You know, 
I kind of feel like I want to take the summer off. I have a I have a novel coming out next year, and I would I would like to make that into a screenplay. It's funny this um, the Martha book actually sold as a screenplay to Fox. Um, I don't know that they have plans to make it right now. That may be something that comes next year, but I want to actually write a screenplay myself based on the book that I just wrote because that is a new challenge. I kind of I kind of know how to do the book thing now. It's just not fun if I'm not challenging myself with something new and I think the screenplay is is the next frontier. You know what you know what scares me about the Fox I don't know anything about Fox, but you know there's something called development hell. You know yes. about that, right? And so so many scripts that are sold never get made. You know why I think? I just realized they haven't Marthaized their studios. <laughs> they have all these scripts, and they they can't find them. Where was that Jen Lancaster thing we bought? They, they don't even know what what draw it's in. You've got to you've got to go in there and really do a house cleaning for them, and then make sure the Tao of Martha rises to the top. From your lips to God's ears. Because <laughs> Martha's behind this project. She knows all about the TV show. I mean, she was there for the pitch meetings. It was the screenwriter that was in the pitch meetings, the screenwriter and Martha. And I was I was at my house cleaning up, you know, dog mess in my living room. But the fact that Martha was there and knew about it, I think is significant. So, so a final question, final question. So, hey, look, things are going so well for you now. You never know what's going to happen, but, but now I have faith. You're a resilient person. You've got that resilience. <laughs> But Martha Stewart, any sign that she may have learned something from you now? I don't think she's learned anything from me because I don't think that there's anything she needs to be taught. I think that she learned everything that she was lacking. And this is this is the whole one of the whole reasons that I wanted to live my life by her dictates. She went to prison. That could she could have retired after that. She could have crumbled, but she went to prison and she made friends and she made ponchos and she rose to the occasion and she came out saying, oh, by the way, I'm still Martha Stewart and this is still my empire. And I had so much respect for that. So I think any trial by fire, she's already been through. That's that's a great observation. Well, so fits into the resilience theme and uh, we, we don't want, look, we don't want prison for people to learn resilience, uh, but, you know, she served her time, and uh, it's nice that your father didn't say—it's nice that the choice when you were a child was not clean the pool or prison. <laughs> so that that's a good thing, but thank you, Jen, for sharing your story with us. Uh, thank you. This, this is the first time you're really sharing it in a big way, so you know what? Here, here's the reality. Every interview that comes after this scene and profile is going to just be— it's going to be white noise. Everybody needs to come back to the CNN profile interview <laughs> to really understand Jen, Jen Lancaster never again to be called Jennifer because you are, <laughs> you are never getting in trouble. I, I can feel it. I hope. Well, th thank you so much for joining us on CNN Profiles. Thank you. By the way, you can find CNN Profiles on our website, cnn.com slash soundwaves, or download us from iTunes or go to SoundCloud. And please, if you like what you hear, don't be shy. Share.